Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide, that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Kieran Musanuru. He's a professor of medicine. He's also the director of Genetic and Epigenetic Origins of Disease Program. Uh, it's all part of the Perelman School of Medicine, uh, University of Pennsylvania. So, uh, Kieran, thanks for coming. How are you doing? I'm very good. Thanks for having me on, Richard. Yeah, and I saw in your bio that you're working with uh, CRISPR-Cas9 technology. So, uh, can you tell me a bit about your research? Absolutely. So, I'm a cardiologist. Uh, so, I focus on patients with heart disease. Heart disease, I should uh, remind the audience, if they're not already aware of it, is the number one killer worldwide. That's true in the United States. It's become true even in the poorest countries on earth. It's the leading cause of death in men and the leading cause of death in women, leading cause of death in, in minorities as well as non-minorities. So it, it's a pretty equal opportunity disease. It affects everyone very broadly. And so in my mind, I think of it as the preeminent global health threat of the, of the 21st century and, and the biggest challenge that we're facing in the medical profession. And so my approach has been to try to understand what genes influence heart health and heart disease and use that information to try to develop new therapies that can protect the general population against heart disease. Okay. So what kind of therapies are you considering? Yeah. So you mentioned CRISPR. So I, I'll get to that. So there's this sort of goes in, in several phases. So the first phase is to, you have to, you have to find new genes, new targets for therapies that will actually do what you want to do, which is prevent heart disease. And that turns out not to be so trivially easy. You know, many smart people have been working on this for decades. And despite that, the treatment options are actually fairly limited for the protection uh, of patients against heart disease. You have statin drugs, cholesterol-lowering drugs, a few other options that have become available in just the last few years, but, but the uh, cupboard is pretty bare uh, despite 
hard work by many intelligent people. And what has changed in the last 15 years or so is the completion of the Human Genome Project. So the ability to read all 6.4 billion letters in our DNA code in each cell, every cell of our bodies, and actually read that information and then use that information and link that to patients who have disease, people who do not have disease, and try to figure out what's different between those groups of people. And because of this revolution, if you will, um, in genetics, we're now able to identify new genes that link to heart disease. Um, and so let me give you an example. About 10 years ago, worked with a person, I couldn't, can't call her a patient because she was actually totally healthy. Um, and it was very clear that she was protected against heart disease. She had incredibly low cholesterol levels. We think of cholesterol as something that drives disease, and that's true. She had basement level cholesterol level, um, and it actually ran in her family. So it was not just her, it was three of her brothers. And we realized there must be something genetic going on. This isn't something that normally happens. It's not something you could achieve just through lifestyle alone. The levels were so low. And so we sequenced genes from, from these family members. They kindly donated DNA samples. And, and we found a new gene. And we found that in these four siblings, they actually had mutations, changes in the DNA in, these, in this particular gene that turned the gene off. And so you can think of this as a new cholesterol gene that if you turn it off, protects against heart. And so because these people, these siblings already had this in them, they were born with this and they were perfectly healthy. They had no risk of disease. They had not a hint of disease in the arteries that feed the heart muscle. We took a look at that. How, how old were they though? And, uh, you know, they're now into their seventies and eighties and have children and, you know, grandchildren probably by this point, no hint of any problem related to the heart or otherwise. And so what this tells you is that if you make a drug that somehow turns off this gene, it should be all upside. It'll reduce cholesterol levels and it'll protect against heart disease without any downside. And so several drug companies inspired by this example have been making new drugs against this particular gene. Uh, the first was actually approved earlier this year. It's an antibody-based drug. That you take injections every month, and it works really well. It cuts cholesterol levels in half. Uh, the drug, or what is it? Inhibits yeah, the so, gene, or what do you mean? Yeah, so the, so the way this works is that the, the drug is an antibody that binds to the protein that's produced by the gene. So this gene is active in the liver. It makes the protein in the liver cells, but then that protein... Um, is exported, if you will, into the bloodstream. And so the protein actually has its effects on cholesterol in the bloodstream. So if you put in via injection, if you put in an antibody that binds to that, 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 you know, locks up that protein in the bloodstream, clears it out of the bloodstream, you are basically doing the equivalent of turning off the gene or turning off the protein, knocking it down. And it works very well. As I mentioned, it, it you know, cuts cholesterol levels in half in the patients who receive it. Do so they need I'm, to have this gene? Do they not need to have this gene? Yeah, it's, 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 it's a, a great, medication. It's a great question. Why do we even have this gene? If it's if it's not essential, and in fact, you can be perfectly fine and maybe even healthier with it turned off. You know, why do we even have it? Why did it evolve? Well, you know, it, it's hard to know, but this gene has been around for hundreds of millions of years. It's found, you know, widely across the evolutionary tree, um, not just in humans, not just in mammals but animals going all the way back to, to fish. So we're, we're really talking hundreds of millions of years that this gene has existed. And its role appears to be to push up cholesterol levels in the blood. You might ask, why would you want to do that? Well, cholesterol is actually an essential molecule. You need cholesterol. It's an important component of 
all the cells in the body, the reason that they are able to stay intact is because their membranes, their surfaces are studded with cholesterol, lends support, lends strength. Otherwise, all our cells would burst. <laughs> we would, you know, that wouldn't be compatible with life. Um, cholesterol is also used to make a lot of, you know, a lot of important hormones, you know, estrogen, testosterone, things like that. Um, uh, adrenaline, they're all made from cholesterol. So cholesterol is a very important molecule. You need cholesterol, but you don't want too much of it. If you have too much of it, then it tends to accumulate in the blood vessels that uh, feed the heart muscle. And then the unintended consequences, if you will, is that uh, you end up with a heart attack. So it's all about achieving the right balance. So there's some genes that push the cholesterol levels in the blood up because that's how all the cells in your body get cholesterol that they need. It's transported through the bloodstream. There are other genes that have the opposite effect. They push the cholesterol levels down. And so you have this regulation, counter-regulation, pushing up, pushing down to achieve that, that perfect balance. That's ideal. Now, that so why, been, if, if yeah. the body regulates, why would it uh, allow a high cholesterol regime or a low one if there's enough cholesterol in the body? Yeah, so that, that's a great question. So when, when, you know, going back hundreds of millions of years, it was, you know, it was a time when it was sort of feast and famine. So there were times when, you know, animals were not getting enough cholesterol in their diet. For that reason, it was very important that you have these genes that push up whatever cholesterol you can get to make sure it gets into the blood, right? Modern humans, we do not have that problem. We do not suffer from a lack of cholesterol in our diets. We have too much of it. And so there are a lot of wonderful things about modern life, but one of the negative consequences is that heart disease has become the dominant disease, as I mentioned at the beginning, the number one killer. And the reason for that is we're living long enough that we're exposed to higher cholesterol levels than we really should be. And a lot of that is through our diet and it builds up over time and it causes problems later in life. Okay, so how does CRISPR-Cas9 come into this situation? Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700-plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000-plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from $10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Yeah. So I mentioned, you know, you, you can, you can turn off some of these genes temporarily, you know, with these injections uh, or potentially even pills every day. But the problem is, those things don't last for very long. So you, you have to take them over and over and over again. And, you know, heart disease is a chronic disease. It's not something where, you know, if, if you, you know, you can't lower your cholesterol one day and then expect that to last for a long time. You really need to keep your cholesterol down ideally for the rest of your life if you want full protection against heart attack, against heart disease. So, you know, it means taking a pill every day for the rest of your life or getting injections every few weeks for the rest of your life. And that's a lot to ask of patients. That, that's a big burden um, in some cases. And so it's not surprising that, you know, physicians like myself, we prescribe these medications to patients, but many of them stop taking them, you know, a few months later or a year later. And once you stop taking the medication, it, it doesn't do you any good. CRISPR is different. CRISPR is a so-called gene editing technology that allows us to change 
letters in the DNA. So I mentioned that there's 6.4 billion letters in the DNA, in every cell, in your body. And what CRISPR allows us to do now is actually find one specific letter out of that 6.4 billion letters and make a change there. And because we have this precision now, what we can do is we can deliver CRISPR into the liver. And I can explain how that works if you're interested. Uh, There's an interesting parallel with the COVID-19 vaccines, actually. Um, But you can deliver CRISPR into the liver and very precisely turn off a cholesterol gene. And because it's a change that happens at the DNA level, it is a permanent change. So once it's done, it is done. It is permanent. And that's good because once you've gotten that treatment, you are protected for the rest of your life. Your cholesterol will permanently be down and your risk of heart disease will be also be down uh, indefinitely. That's the idea. It's a once and done therapy. That's the advantage of something like CRISPR. Well, has it been used on people yet or rats or... How's it been used? Yeah, so it's being used uh, for a number of diseases. So, you know, I'm interested in using it for heart disease, but, you know, some of the early success stories have been actually the biggest story, I think, that's really come out over the last year or so is sickle cell disease, which is a terrible disease. Um, For those of you who know someone who has sickle cell disease, terrible disease. It strikes, you know, in childhood, it causes intense episodes of pain, organ damage, a very, very debilitating disease for those who have. And it turns out that it's a problem with the red blood cells. And so what it is now possible to do is use CRISPR to effectively fix the problem, to actually take the cells, not the red blood cells themselves, but the stem cells in the body that um, are continually producing new red blood cells because they're turning over all the time and actually be able to take those stem cells from the bone marrow, we're talking about bone marrow stem cells, take them from the bone marrow out of the body, use the editing to essentially fix the gene that has the problem that causes sickle cell disease in those stem cells outside of the body. And once they're edited or repaired, if you will, put them back in the body. So it's the patient's own cells now repaired, put back in, and now they start making effectively normal red blood cells. And it actually seems to work. This is the remarkable thing. I couldn't even even imagine this, say, 10 years ago. It actually seems to cure patients with sickle cell. Very exciting. The same technology is being used to treat cancer. It's being used to treat HIV. All of of this is in clinical trials. There's no medication you can have your physician prescribe yet, but it's coming. It's coming. You know, give it five years, 10 years. And we're going to see CRISPR used um, and gene editing used broadly for a whole variety of diseases, whether it's cancer or sickle cell disease or cardiovascular disease, as I'm hoping to. So how far away are, is anyone from using uh, CRISPR-Cas9 for this purpose? What's, what's left to do to, to get into the clinic? If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Yeah, so as I said, it's, it's all in clinical trials. And so those take time, right? These, this is an experimental technology. First and foremost, you have to show it's safe. You don't want it to go into patients until it's safe. You do clinical trials, and those can take years. Those can take, you know, several years. It can take 10 years or more, um, depending on the patients, depending on, uh, you know, what, what disease you're trying to treat, depending on whether there are already existing treatment options. It's all about making sure the medications are safe in those clinical trials. And then once you have shown that it is safe and effective, uh, then you can get approval from regulatory agencies like the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, for that drug to actually be available broadly for any patient 
early for any physician to prescribe to any patient who could benefit from it. So it's a, it's a long process. It's not going to happen overnight. But the fact that it's it's starting to see use in patients in the context of clinical trials, and it seems to be working in these patients in some cases, um, is very exciting because it means that you know sooner or later it is going to be broadly available to everyone. Okay, so why why not use induced pluripotent stem cells? Why do you have to go to bone marrow and be so invasive? Yeah, so pluripotent stem cells. So yeah, that's that's an interesting question. So in principle, what you could do, and maybe this will happen eventually, um, we're just not quite there yet. In principle, what you could do is you could just take a blood draw from a person, and you can take some of the blood cells and do the so-called reprogramming into pluripotent stem cells. So then they become cells that you can turn into any tissue type you want, any cell type in the body, whether it's uh, red blood cells or heart muscle cells or liver cells or nerve cells or, uh, you know, you name it. In theory, you can turn them into any type of body cell. So that's the advantage there. Uh, And then what you can imagine doing is, you know, if you have a patient who has a particular genetic mutation with whatever disease, you take a blood sample, turn some of those cells into pluripotent stem cells, do the gene editing to fix the problem, then grow up those cells, turn them into the cell type that you need, whichever one of the, you know, like several hundred that exist in the body, whichever will actually treat the disease in question. Um, In the case of sickle cell, it would be, uh, you know, bone marrow cells, red blood cells, and then, you know, put them back in the body. So I think there is the prospect of being able to do that. It's just, you know, it takes a long time to go from A to Z. Pluripotent stem cells weren't really a thing until, just about 15 years ago. And so there's still a very experimental system, whereas bone marrow transplants have been done for many decades now. So it's a more familiar way of doing things. And there's a lot of experience in, in doing bone marrow transplants with patients. So you're building on a base that already exists, whereas with pluripotent stem cells, there's still a lot of uh, of that foundation to build. But I think you're right. It, you it said the, the 15 years, I mean, it just seems very invasive to do, you know, bone marrow harvesting. Why not you know, do yeah. it through blood or skin. I mean, I've talked to a lot of people that are seeming to use induced pluripotent stem cells. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, and I, I agree with you, and I, I think it will come. You know, the other potential approach might, you know, if, if this could be worked out, and there are, there are various uh, academic researchers and various companies working on this, why take cells out of the body at all? What if you could deliver CRISPR directly to the bone marrow stem cells where they are in the body? using some sort of delivery vehicle like a lipid nanoparticle, which we can talk about more in a moment, um, because that's the same technology that underlies the COVID-19 vaccines. Uh, But the idea is you would get an injection, and then the injection would deliver the gene editing tool, the CRISPR, wherever it needs to go in the body and actually make the edit right there in the body. Then you can save the patient a lot of hassle. You don't have to take any cells out at all. You don't have to do any sort of transplantation. It gets fixed within the body. So that would be the best solution if, if it comes to pass. Well, how do you know that the uh, only the liver cells, for instance, will be affected? How do well, you make so, sure that they don't affect everything? Yeah, so it all depends on the, the delivery vehicle, right? So, and again, that that's an issue of technology. So, you know, the most common way that it's being done nowadays, it's so-called gene therapy, which is to deliver genes, replacement genes for genes that are not working in the body into different parts of the body. So... There are certain flavors, if you will, of these uh, viral vectors, as they're called. They're based on uh, existing viruses, but then they're tuned so that they're safer. And they're also tuned so that they have some, if you will, GPS functionality in them. So they will go where you want them to go. So, for example, you can make these viral vectors that will go pretty specifically to the liver. So if you want to fix something in the liver, you can go there. 
If you want to send them to the heart to fix something in the heart, you can send them there. If you want to send them into the brain because there's something you need to fix there and get them to the brain. So these viral vectors do allow for some specificity, do allow you to direct therapy to where it needs to go in the body. There are newer technologies that don't involve viruses like lipid nanoparticles. So the COVID-19 vaccines that, uh, you know, we're all getting now, you know, particularly the Moderna vaccine and the Pfizer vaccine, they're based on these lipid nanoparticles, which are essentially fatty spheres that are designed to be injected into the body and then deliver their cargo to wherever they're injected. Um, in the case of the COVID-19 vaccine, it's a jab into the arm. So it's delivering right into the local muscle. And then this fatty sphere is delivering so-called mRNA or messenger RNA. And in the case of the COVID-19 vaccines, what it's doing is that messenger RNA, that mRNA is making the spike protein of the coronavirus. It creates an immune response. And that's what makes you protected against COVID-19. Now, this can work in a very different way. For example, you can make a lipid nanoparticle that doesn't contain an mRNA for the viral spike protein, but instead contains a gene or contains CRISPR to allow you to do gene editing. And then the idea is you can now inject the LNP into the bloodstream, and then it could go, depending on where you direct it, to organs like the liver or to muscles or whatnot, and deliver the gene or deliver the gene editor directly to that place. And that that's attractive because it doesn't involve viruses in theory, could be safer. Okay. Are you doing any direct research into the CRISPR-Cas9, you know, effects of this treatment or is it, uh, is it being done by others and you're taking your role? Yeah. So, yeah. So my laboratory has been working on this applications for heart disease. So, uh, you know, we started the conversation by talking about genes involved in heart attack and cholesterol genes and so forth. So I have been using CRISPR to turn off cholesterol genes in the liver. And so I've done a lot of work in my own laboratory to do this in various mouse models. The work is now progressing to larger animals, to non-human primates, monkeys, um, and it's looking very good there. So I think, you know, in, in due course, in the next year or two, um, the hope is that we'll be able to start clinical trials in order to, to be able to, to treat heart disease. In fact, there already is one clinical trial going on to treat a type of heart failure called amyloidosis. And the first patients in that clinical trial got the treatment, oh, I'd say about six months ago now. And so, you know, every, all of us in the field are very eagerly awaiting uh, the results to see whether the treatment uh, worked or how well it worked. So exciting. Yeah. Okay. Are there certain conditions that you think, you know, you talked about heart disease, but it's kind of general, but what uh, specific conditions do you think it will help with and why, which ones do you think will be harder? Yeah. So the most common form of heart disease is heart attack. And that's caused by blockages in the arteries and the blood vessels that feed the heart muscle. One of them gets a big clot, gets blocked off. Um, and then the muscle that gets fed by that artery is no longer getting oxygen and nutrients. It starts to die. And if the problem is not fixed quickly enough, if you don't get to the hospital in time and get that artery opened, um, then the heart muscle dies and, you know, you can either die immediately. That happens less and less nowadays, but it can give you more long-term consequences like heart failure, like abnormal heart rhythms that can be life-threatening and so forth. It's the most common form of heart disease. It's also the number one killer worldwide, as I said, you know, at the beginning of our, of our conversation. Um, it doesn't really discriminate in terms of who is affected and who gets heart attacks. And so there's the potential to help there because gene editing can be used to turn off cholesterol genes in the liver. It turns out the liver is the organ that regulates um, that controls cholesterol levels uh, in the body. 
more than other, any other organ. So if you can turn off cholesterol genes in the liver, you reduce people's cholesterol levels, and then it, it makes them less prone to get the blockages in the, in the heart arteries and to get heart attacks. And I think that's relatively straightforward, but there are other types of heart disease, rarer types of heart disease, uh, where there's a structural problem within the heart itself. It gets thicker than it should be and doesn't pump as well. Or it actually has the opposite problem. It balloons out, it dilates, as we say. It becomes much larger and the walls become very thin. And that can also lead to heart failure because it's not pumping well. And so those, are, those conditions are often caused by um, mutations in particular genes in the heart. So if you wanted to fix those conditions, you would actually need to do gene editing in the heart. Wait, um, wait, wait, wait. You're saying during someone's life that their, the genes of their heart will what, mutate and that's why they'll have heart disease? No, so they're born with the mutation. So they're born with the mutation. And so they have it all their lives, but it, takes, it can often take decades for enough damage to occur to the heart to cause problems for them to get the disease. Okay. So yeah, it's, it's something they inherit. It can run in families, be passed on from generation to generation. And, you know, you, often the best treatment we have for that is heart transplants. But obviously, you know, that's a challenging thing. Uh, there's a scarcity of hearts, obviously, because people need hearts to live. And so... You need to be immunosuppressed too. I mean, it's like exactly. a whole cascade exactly. of problems. Exactly. So you can see that, you know, if you, if you have someone who has a mutation, is starting to develop the disease... You'd ideally like to catch it early and be able to fix that genetic problem at its source um, with something like gene editing. It's challenging because you got to get it. You got to get the gene editor into the heart. You got to fix the specific problem with that particular gene. It's not quite as easy as turning off a cholesterol gene where any way you can turn it off would work. Whereas if you're trying to correct a specific issue, that can be more challenging. But if you could do it, then you stop the disease early before it's caused any permanent damage. And then that patient, uh, you know, will be very well served by that. Much better than getting Again, a heart how, how, do you, how do you know that you're just going to turn off the, uh, you know, the gene in the liver cells and not everywhere in the body? And they might have other consequences if it's turned off. Yeah. So regulated. Yeah. So it, it all depends on how you're delivering it. But, uh, you know, a lot of the work is done in animal models and mice and monkeys. And when those studies are done, uh, the researchers involved look very carefully throughout the entire body to see where the editing is happening. If it's intended to happen in the liver, you want to make sure it's happening in the liver at a very high level because that's going to give you the treatment. But you also want to see that it's not happening at all or if it is happening at all anywhere else, it's happening at a very, very low level. You know, Could you, could you accomplish this epigenetically without having to change the genes or has anyone yes. even looked yeah, so that's that's a great question. So there's there's another form of CRISPR that does not actually change the letters in the DNA sequence, um, but what it can do is change the packaging of the DNA in such a way that it effectively turns down the gene, essentially through exactly as you said, epigenetics. And so this is very new stuff, only really reported just in the last few months. I wouldn't even call it gene editing. You would, you would actually call it like an epigenetic editor, but it might be a way to turn off a gene in a more benign way than actually changing the sequence. So the possibility is definitely there. Okay. What's the timeline? How many years do you think till uh, something significant is going to be? In, term, in terms of these treatments? Yeah. How long till something hits the clinic, you know, for any, any aspect of heart disease, do you think? For heart disease? Yeah. So as I said, there's a clinical trial going on already. If it works... I think we could expect to see 
a treatment that is widely available to everyone, perhaps in five years, you know, that's, that's, you know, I'm just guessing it's hard to know, you know, it's not really, you know, it's really up to the regulatory agencies like the FDA to determine, you know, how fast or how slowly these things could go, how many patients it needs to be studied in first, how many clinical trials have to be done before it can become broadly available to everyone. But I think, you know, five years is probably a reasonable estimate if everything goes well. This assumes that the therapy works, of course, right? Okay. Well, I was just wondering, um, yep. yeah, there's phase one, two, three clinical trials. So maybe it was yeah, so, phase one. Yeah. So everything's in phase one right now. And, you know, exactly as you said, you have to go through one, then to two, then to three. And so each of those takes, you know, a minimum of a year or two. Um, so that's the timeline we're looking at in the best case scenario. Is anyone making um, liver or heart organoids to test this stuff? You know, can you, is CRISPR Cas9 work on an organoid? It does. It does. Um, so you can do some interesting things with with organoids, with stem cells, with things in a dish, and uh, see how well it works. It's a nice. It's a nice model. It's a nice alternative to testing things in animals because with those organoids that you mentioned, you can actually use human cells and, and be studying what's happening in human cells with human genomes. And you know that's actually important because. You know, we share a lot of the same genes with other animals, but they're not exactly the same versions. They have sequence differences. And so just because a gene editor works well on, say, the mouse version of a gene, it's not an automatic given that it's going to work well on a human version of a gene. So something could look really good in mice, but actually not work that well in human beings. And, you know, one way you could de-risk that is to test it in something like human-derived organoids in a dish and see if the editing works well there. And then if it works well on that, then you have more confidence that's going to work well in an actual live human being. What about um, extracellular vesicles? Can you package CRISPR-Cas9 in them and then release them yeah. and then into the right cells? Yeah, so I think that is a possibility. There are researchers who are working on that. I've seen some papers that have been published over the last you know, two, two years or so, suggesting that it is possible. Um, you know, again, early days, but um, I think there is some potential there. Absolutely. Okay. Well, very good. Um, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go? Yeah. So the best place uh, I can give you uh, my website is my first and last name together as one word, K-I-R-A-N-M-U-S-U-N-U-R-U.com. That's a very easy way to reach me. Or if you just use my last name alone, M-U-S-U-N-U-R-U.com, it'll go to the same place. So that gives you some uh, information about uh, about me and my work and a book I've written and, and so forth. Um, the other place to look for me is to type my name um, into Google along with University of Pennsylvania, and that'll take you to my academic website, my laboratory website, uh, where you can also find information on me and, and more, probably more importantly, on my work and my research. Well, very good, Kieran. Thanks for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.